November the 15th is today. Lecture discussion number 15, or 115, right? No, 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 no. What is it, 120? 120. Lecture discussion number 120. I wrote 15 down twice. Because I'm out of practice, obviously. So, uh, November 15th, lecture discussion number 120 uh, on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes. So, here we are, back in operation. Note that I did not say fully operational. We are not fully operational, nor did I reveal or define what here meant, because here is obviously uh, different, because the renowned Cliffside Digital Vast Audience is intuitive by nature. All of you can notice that we have changed venue, which we have. We have relocated, and it's mostly my fault, being that I have a congenital cardiomyopathy, it was decided to restrict and isolate to a more controlled environment uh, until such time as this surge of coronavirus subsides. And as is the case nationally, I know there's many of you all across the United States and in the world, uh, so it is in Alaska. Alaska is experiencing substantial increases in transmissions, hospitalizations, and mortality. And uh, Cliffside specifically was exposed, as you know, recently. And that led to a mandated quarantine period that we finally escaped from. Um, so uh, that's what has happened. But we have, as butterflies will, emerged from our cocoons, finally, to once again provide a Medicare-approved regimen for insomnia, cleverly disguised as a theological lecture, as everyone knows. Someone said that they expected uh, three hours of lecture today because to make up. And I, I almost did that. It's really insane that I even thought that it was possible. But anyway, everybody knows that this is, uh, this is going to be exhausting today. I, I, I know it is because I wrote it and I know how much I have here. <coughs> but to start out really fast, do butter, does butter fly? Of course it doesn't. Butter is churns cow's milk with colorant additives. It does not fly. And I think it's obvious that butter does not fly. And I tell the grandchildren that it doesn't fly. And they insist otherwise. They think they've seen butter fly. And they have not. Anyway, the plan today is to eventually, if the Lord tarries and the creeks don't rise, because you want to make God laugh, right? Uh, and tell him what your plans are tomorrow. Yeah. But the plan, nonetheless, is to transition out of here, even though this is where I began. Isn't that interesting? 25 years ago, 23 years ago, um, 25 years ago, I was doing less lectures in another church. 23, I think, I began lectures here. Prior to that, I did lectures on... uh, I would revisit the Dwayne Gish, Henry Morris debates with respect to evolution and creationary and creation uh, positions. But there used to be people going up this handrail around you and sitting up in the balcony that's here. Or the balcony wasn't here then, but the, the partial balcony was. And this is where I would stand. So I've kind of returned to my birth, if you will, uh, once I left the teaching profession in the public schools and the private school. So, so the plan eventually, though, is to transition to um, possibly to a graciously offered office in an undisclosed fortified chamber. So we're looking at that possibility. The office is going to require some minor completion, insulation, vapor barrier, plywood shear, sheetrock, tape, mud, texture, primer paint, electrical ventilation, door trim, and flooring. So it's going to take Lori a while to get that done by herself, because I must remain in administration, as you know. It's tough to be in charge all the time, but somebody has to be. <sighs> but if we do that, and, and that is something that we're looking at carefully, it'll allow us to reestablish the cliffside audio recording equipment. Right now, it's not, uh, as well as the video systems. We're getting by today. I hope you can hear me, because we do not have any audio uh, enhancement. I do have this device in front of me that hopefully when I turn away from it, I can remember not to do that so that it'll record everything clearly. 
But that's what the plan is, is we have to have some place where we can set up all the equipment. We could probably do it here. And it's possible we may be stuck here for a while. Uh, we'll see how that goes. And in that area that we're looking at, there are adjacent and adjoining spaces uh, that will accommodate uh, future expansion and assimilation when this contagion begins to naturally expire, and that's assuming that it does. Typically, coronaviruses do, in fact, begin to degrade over time. They become less and less virulent. I recognize this talk about a, uh, a vaccine and all of that, uh, and we'll see how that goes. Uh, so I'm not counting on it, I guess is what I'm saying, because I recognize that that's going to be a period of time that may in fact exceed what the natural degradation of the virus might be, which is sometime, I hope, in the coming summer. But who knows? This could be with us for quite a while. If it is, then that makes it more theological, if you will. That tells us that this is, in fact, something that is reaching the end of the age of the Gentiles, in my opinion. All of that to say it's unlikely that Cliffside will return to our previous facility. We have no plans to do that. Uh, and so uh, for those who send me actual letters, um, it's, uh, we're never going to be at that address again. So please direct those letters to Cliffside Community Chapel. So Cliffside Community Chapel, uh, P.O. Box 110670, Anchorage, Alaska, 99511. So that is our new, uh, that is our Permanent mailing address. Is that we've, all you're the what's that? Okay. Oh, you, I turned away from my recording device, didn't I? Cliffside Community Chapel, P.O. Box 110670, Anchorage, Alaska 99511. Those of you who send me real letters. The, I'm getting better at the email thing. I really am. I, I can get one done in about four hours now, which has <laughs> really cut my time way down. <sighs> Okay, where are we? Um, that should be enough there. That's on the board. Somebody can stop the tape and they can find it. But I'm not going to have room for it today because, after all, I have three hours of material. Where are we? Where were we? Where are we going? All that stuff. When we last saw our intrepid little cliffside band of wanderers, they were flailing about in microbiological implications and the theological uh, issues of the immune response, if you will which interconnect with Genesis 6. That's the day and the days of Noah. And, of course, the day and the days of Noah interconnect with the day and the days of Lot, Genesis 18 and 19. So Genesis 6, Genesis 18 and 19 fit together. Both of those contain information about the day and the days of the Son of Man, which is Luke 17 and Daniel 7, 9 through 11. Actually, 9 through 14. So I could put that on the board. Let me do that. Genesis 6. So I've got Genesis 6, I've got Genesis 18 and 19, I've got Daniel, uh, let me make sure I've got that right, 7, 9 through 14. Those are all together, and of course Luke 17. All of that has to be analyzed as a unit, if you will, to think of it that way. And intermixed with all of that is this incredible mystery that shows up at Jude 9, which is the body of Moses, as you know. That's Deuteronomy 34. That hooks to Jude 9. So now I've got those two that fit into all of this. Remember, I kind of did this a little bit uh, before. At Deuteronomy 34, Deuteronomy 18.15. We'll send you to the Transfiguration, where Christ reveals himself as to who he really is. Matthew 17. Uh, and so, uh, when you get to Deuteronomy 34, Matthew 17, then you are at Revelation 11. That's the two witnesses. Why are you at Revelation 11? Because the evidence is overwhelming, in my opinion, that one of the two witnesses is, in fact, Moses. And I think Deuteronomy 34 makes that clear, as does Jude 9. That is, of course, the contention of uh, Michael the archangel and Satan, the anointed cherub. And 
when you get through all of that, of course, you are now at Genesis 2-7, where the body of Adam is awaiting the soul to be breathed into it. And uh, Genesis 2-7 and Ecclesiastes 12, 6 and 7, that's where uh, Solomon explains that the soul goes back to him who gave it. It is the breath of life and the body goes to dust. That's Genesis 3, uh, 19. That's Genesis 7:22, Genesis 1:20, Genesis 1:21, 1:24, 1:28, 1:30. 1, uh, I say that all the time because that's where the phrase is. It's the same exact words in every one of those. 722, 120, 121, 124, 128, and 130 all are the same phrase in the Hebrew. Living soul, living soul, living soul, living soul, living soul. All of them are that way. It's the same words. It applies to everyone that it applies to in the passages. And that is something that very few people theologically are aware of. Unfortunately, it's a great tragedy because it degrades the character, the goodness of God. And that's always a mistake. Eventually, all of that concludes that the entombed body of Christ Psalm 16.10 Acts Acts 2.31 I have to do this, don't I? That drooling. John 2.19 John 2.19 is particularly important because they didn't know the Scripture. And I have made the case that the Scripture was Psalm 16.10 There's a Scripture that they didn't know. John 2:19 and 22 and John 20:9. All of that, as you remember, I'm recapping what's what we've missed for the last or what we did last time we met. Really, this is the body of Adam, the body of Moses, the body of Christ. Romans 5:14, Deuteronomy 18:15. Do not separate Romans 5:14. From Deuteronomy 18.15. That will lead you astray theologically, in my opinion. Now, obviously, I've excluded lots, many other scriptural references that belong on the board. I don't have time to do it because, again, we have three hours of material to do. Daniel 10.13, Daniel 12.1, both are Michael the Archangel passages, which is a Jude 9 connection, isn't it? So I need to go out and get all the Michael that I can find and put it into Jude 9 because this is an amazing mystery, Jude 9. As is Deuteronomy 34. So I'm saying Jude 9, Deuteronomy 34. Lock up. Also, I had Jacob's ladder, Genesis 28, 10 through 22. I hope you remember that. John 3, 12, Matthew 22, 29 through 33. That's the Sadducees who did not believe there was any resurrection. Genesis 28, 10 through 22 is about resurrection. That is the ladder that is Christ. And the angels descending and ascending, which is Proverbs 30, verse 4. See how this goes? I know I'm repeating it pretty much. Ego, Eli. That is, I am. That's the latter. Genesis 28. Also, uh, Exodus 3, 1, 4. I probably didn't get that on the tape. I need to turn around. Genesis 28, the latter, is Exodus 3.14. It's Proverbs 30, verse 4. It's uh, Matthew 22.29-33 and John 3.12. And all of that, this is the I am, right? The, the great I am that I am. I am that I am. That is this in the Greek. When he says that, he's telling you that this is the us, the Elohim. Genesis 1.1, Genesis 1.26, Genesis 3.22, Deuteronomy 6.4. Every bit of that is about one thing. Resurrection. Resurrection. The I am is about resurrection. John 11.25, 8.12, 8.24. I could go on and on and on and on and on, but uh, hopefully you're getting the point here. I tried to do it a few weeks ago. Just yay a point. I forgot. 
But essentially, this is where we have left off, where I left off, where you have been, mostly. And my diabolical plan all along has been to inundate, flood the class, the audience, those of you who listen, with this overwhelming connectivity that is produced by one sentence. Jude 9. That's the contention of Michael and Satan over the body of Moses, which is an amazing mystery. And I should inject here that God's method of burial, because in Deuteronomy 34, he says, 34-7, he says that he buries Moses. When he says bury, what do you think? If you think he dug a hole, that's not what he does. That's what we do. It's not what he does. God's method of burial is not aligned with our practice of burial. God hid, he placed the body of Moses, Deuteronomy 34, 6, into a tomb. He didn't dig a hole in the ground and cover him with dirt. Put him into a tomb. And, and he did that for a reason. He did it because of Deuteronomy 18, 15 and John 19, 41. What's John 19.41? That's Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. What are they doing? They are inside the tomb that Christ placed himself using them. And what are they doing in there? Joseph and, and, and Nicodemus, who's the teacher of Israel, placed his body... And that's 16.10. Whenever I talk about the body of Christ, I have to have 16.10 of Psalms overhead. They put his body, Psalm 16.10, no corruption for the holy thing. That's the body of Christ. No corruption for the holy thing. Luke one thirty five, John 17.15. And they put him into a new tomb inside a garden. That's what John 17.15 says. I have the body of Christ being placed inside of a garden. Where am I now in the Bible? This is the second Adam. This is the last Adam. Who's the first Adam? Yes, that's right. He's in a garden. So I have both of them, Gethsemane, this garden aspect. Why is the tomb in a garden? Because it obviously refers to the garden. The Lord planted a garden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Adam's Romans 5.14 is a type. He's a portrait of Christ. There are no coincidences ever in Scripture. Get that out of your mind. Coincidence is incompatible with omniscience. There cannot be coincidences. Every word has some meaning. You just have to spend the time to figure it out. Go over no word. We should expect Genesis 2.8 and John 19.41 to occur. Does that make sense? John 19.41 is they put him inside of a garden. No, sorry. Let me read 19.41 before I make a mistake. Oh. Now, yeah, I was correct. Gosh, why don't I trust myself? Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. In the garden, a new tomb, which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for a tomb was nearby. A lot of information there. That's why Genesis 2.8, when, when Adam is placed into a garden, John 19.14, for, I'm sorry, John 19.41 is going to happen. Christ is going to be placed into a garden because of Romans 5.14. He's following what he has formatted. Anyway, to repeat, the, the diabolical intention is always to bury as many as possible in a tomb with this avalanche of material that is generated by the body of Adam, the body of Moses, the body of Christ. And for those who are still awake, I want you to consider the body of Elijah. Or Elisha, actually. Let's go with Elisha first. But we also have to deal with the body of Elijah. Where's his body? What did God do with it? 
how much relationship does Elijah have with Moses? But then we have Elisha. If you touch the body of Elisha, because the body of Elisha was put in a what? A tomb. It wasn't buried underground. It was put into a tomb. And the body of Elisha is connected to what? That is correct. Those of you who are out there on the internet yelling resurrection, absolutely it is. So I have the body of Christ which is connected to resurrection, my goodness. I have the body of Adam. I have the body of Moses. I have the body of Elisha. I have the body of Elijah going into heaven. All of those have resurrection connotations. Obviously, the body of Elijah, who typifies the omniscience of Christ, that's uh, 2 Kings 6.12, I believe. 2 Kings 6.12 will tell you that he knows things that he couldn't possibly know. He sees things that he couldn't possibly see. He's typifying Christ's omniscient, who sees all things and knows all things. 2 Kings uh, 6.32-7. through when When you recognize what's happening with the body of Elisha, Touch, if you touch it, you get you get resurrected from the dead. Then you know, well, that's got something to do with Jude nine, the contention of Moses' body between Michael and Satan, just for fun, because it's just one of those things we like to do here. Compare Hezekiah and Josiah, Second Kings eighteen four through five, and Second Kings twenty three twenty five. Josiah is buried in his own tomb. And they are both identified as something amazing in the Bible. And since we're considering other things, we had Job a while back, remember? And everybody said, what is he doing now? This makes no sense. This doesn't fit here. Why would he add Job to Moses' body? He's an idiot. Okay. Not everybody said that. Just about four or five hundred of you. Just think about Job. God says to Satan, From where have you come? Does God know he's omniscient? He's outside of time. Sees everything. Why does he ask Satan a question? Because Satan has a, the lie of Satan has many many complex little elements to it. And remember, there's an entire angelic host watching everything that happens between Satan and Christ. Or in this case, the uh, you, you can make the case that this is the entirety of the Elohim, since they are always together. But I think this conversation is Jesus to Satan in Job 1.8. From where have you come? Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Well, of course he had considered his servant Job. Where was Satan? He was considering the servant, his, the servant of God, Job. Why was Satan watching Job? Who else has Satan paid attention to in the Bible? Obviously, Job presented evidence against the lie of Satan, which is Ezekiel 28.16, Genesis 3.4, Isaiah 14. You can begin with those passages locking them together with Job. Uh, what, with what Satan says to Job, you can put the others, Ezekiel 28, Genesis 3, Isaiah 14, together with that, and you can begin to discern and figure out the entirety of the lie of Satan. You see, the, the response to Satan to that question, have you considered my servant Job? Uh, from the omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God of creation is especially relevatory here as it, it's definitive in my position and my most humble, humbler. Humbler? It is humbler. Humbler a word? Yes. You can trust me on that. Never believe anybody who says you can trust me. 
But in my most humbler of humbling opinions, it's definitive as to the nature of Genesis 3-4, this lie of Satan that is, is given to us in a very truncated form with respect to Eve in Ezekiel 28-16. It just says in Ezekiel 28-16, he took the lie from one angel to another by the abundance of his traffic. In other words, Satan reveals his thoughts as he presented them to the angelic realm, as he presented them to Eve, as to their application to the relationship of existence and free will. So let's go and read Job. Let's find Job. He's back here somewhere. I cheated. Evidence. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on earth? Now who was on earth before Job if you have my timeline position? In the mineral Eden. There is none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man. One who fears God and shuns evil. He's saying this to Satan. And so Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him? Oh, where else has God made a hedge? Have you not made a hedge around him? And where else has God put somebody inside of a hedge? Placed him there. Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. uh, Satan is saying to God, destroy him. So to repeat the premise of Satan, the lie of Satan here is announced plainly. It's in a court setting. It's in a judicial procedure. There is a a, a bevy of witnesses in the audience, which is why God asked Satan the question, right? And again, being that I think this is obviously Jesus Christ. He's outside of time. He's the Ancient of Days. That's Daniel 7. He's omniscient. He's the judge of everyone. He knows the response of Satan, and thus the principle in every courtroom, right? Never ask a question in a courtroom of a witness that you don't know the answer to. So God knows what the answer is going to be, and he wants that answer exposed to everyone that is listening. And again, we have the angelic realm. Every time Satan and God are are in this discussion, it is being listened to by a multitude. Obviously, the omniscient creator of time has a distinct advantage here in these discussions, doesn't he? Anyway, again, note Satan's answer, the components, the ordering. It's not just off the cuff. Satan does not speak that way. It's not spontaneous. It's not arbitrary. It is accusatory, as it always is. Satan is implying, overtly declaring, actually, that God has presented a false dynamic or condition. In other words, Satan is saying, Jacob is a Jacob. Job, job. Remember when I could have real medicine? I was a lot better than young, robust bones. Okay, I was fat. Anyway. He's saying that Job is artificially protected. Job cannot choose to curse God because God has arranged otherwise. God has put a garden around him, if you will, whereby Job is predisposed to worship God. And uh, note that Satan would obviously have said this before, right? This is his lie. He repeats it and he repeats it and he repeats it. So he has said it before. Who else has been in a garden that is protected by God that that Satan said this about? So again, I'm locking these together. I was talking to the lovely Lori today about Uriah the Hittite. Uh, who, of course, uh, sacrificed himself so that his wife could live. And that's Genesis 3. And all of these things fit together and reflect one upon the other. That is what makes them so incredible. That is the proof of Scripture being from the mind of an intelligence that we cannot fathom. We can't even imagine it. 
So what he's doing, Satan is doing, is a direct assault on the reality of existence. He is saying that Job is artificially established, has no freedom. And again, Satan conceived that, the argument that free will can only be proved uh, by cursing God to his face. I've said that before. I'll say it again here. The only way you can demonstrate free will is by cursing God. That is uh, Satan's premise. In other words, uh, to keep rephrasing it, Satan's lie states that worshiping God is predicated on blessing, on comfort, on safety, on protection, on peace. And if adversity, affliction, or suffering were to be presented, serenity removed, replaced with agony and anguish and misery, then and only then would free will be evident and exposed, displayed before the angelic realm, as in this case. So I have Job, who's a man. Adam's name actually means man, doesn't it? Just throw that in there. Job, the man, the Adam, if you will, would curse God to his face if God would in fact touch him in an evil way. Satan is saying, touch him. And, and God doesn't, of course, do that. We'll get into that next week. Hopefully you've noticed a similarity. Uh, I've tried to slip it in there with as much obvious nature as I can. Job and Adam fit. Both do something. They both refute the lie of Satan. They provide testimony against Satan's lie. Testimony that is uh, unassailable. But for today, just note that there's two advents. Twice God and Satan have this contest. There's two beholds. Uh, Let's see where the first one is here. Uh, In 112 of Job. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on him, his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. You come over here to two. Uh, And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and unright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And he still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. That's incredibly important. And verse 6, The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. I have two beholds. I have two times where this contest, if you will, is repeated. There's differences. Pay attention to the differences. They're incredibly important. But also pay attention to the similarity. Why does God do this twice with Satan? Very important question. And read ahead if you want and take notice of Job's wife at 2.9 where she says this. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? What does she mean by integrity? Remember that Adam was not deceived. Job is not deceived. In both cases, I have wives who are interesting. Do you still hold fast to your integrity, she says? Curse God and die. Interesting choice of words. Curse God and die. Now I have to find out who else advocates for that. If you curse God before you die, what are the consequences? What is the position of a, of a human being that curses God and dies? And You can make the case that she is asking for him to destroy himself for all eternity. But his integrity held fast, didn't it? So that needs to be, die needs to be properly defined. And we'll do that hopefully next week. If the creeks don't rise and the Lord tarries. And Job would not depart from his belief. What does he believe about God? He believes, if you once we read it and get into it, he believes that God, in the goodness of God. Adam also did not depart from that, 1 Timothy 2.14. Okay, enough of that for today. Where shall we go next? Now we should, we're having fun now. When did, what time did we start? Do you know? Yes. Yes, you know. You have 15 more minutes. Oh, my goodness. Well, actually, you have 15 plus 10. Uh, did we start late? Yes. What time did we start? About 4.10. Okay, so I have, I'm showing uh, 15 to 5 right now. Am I right? Correct. Okay, so I've really got 10 more minutes because we started late. 
And I've got three more hours of material. Right. So there you go. It's going to work well, out perfect. I'm going to give you the 10-minute warning until 5. Okay, that's good. <laughs> so where are we going next? Well, if I were to choose, and I do possess the most holy dry erase marker, which imparts great authority and beauty to the possessor of it, as we all know. There's no evidence to the contrary. Then I would drift, if I got to pick, I would pick pathophysiology, um, which, as you know, that's the uh, essentially that's we're going to get into the immune response system. I, I love this stuff. I can't stop myself. I can't stop myself because one living cell is is unfathomably complex. And the more that one investigates that one little cell, that one cell, the more complexity you find. The complexity increases. And no one understands it. We don't have, biologists will say constantly, we don't understand one cell. And that's, I think, amazing theological implication. And I, as I drew myself into the direction of the pathophysiology or microbiology this month, I studied, what I did, of course, was study interferons and autoantibodies. Auto That's what I did. And I'll present that in a second because I'm, this COVID-19 has led me to start thinking about things like this. But every time I get into microbiology, I reach out and I grab uh, gravitational theory because I see the relation I can't resist. I see the relationship between the two. And recently what I've done is I've looked at Einstein's equivalence principle in a great deeper way. I haven't done that since I was uh, since I was in my 20s. And I've always contrasted Einstein's thinking with Newtonian mechanics because Newton began with the premise that gravity is a undefinable force. A force that draws objects having mass to the center of a body that has greater mass. He saw it as an intelligent system, not an arbitrary system. And Galileo, as you know from seventh grade science, he experimented with mass and gravitational phenomena and acceleration. He dropped things. Um, and we're going to address Einstein's equivalence principle and ask if it's sound thinking. But not today. Everyone's cheer. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to start with autoantibodies. Autoantibodies are especially prominent because of this COVID-19 Wuhan Chinese virus. And um, this virus has effected the cytotoxic cascade autoimmune response in many of those who are critically infected. So these are the seriously ill patients who have contracted COVID-19 and ended up in acute respiratory distress syndrome. Uh, and don't confuse autoantibodies with antibodies. They are not the same. Autoantibodies attack interferons. Now, this is particles, little tiny particles. Uh, but uh, autoantibodies attacking interferons is a pro problematic condition. Interferons are immune system proteins. And they're the initial defense against the pathogen invasion. Viruses, viruses in the immune response are commonly described, and I think correctly so, and I think it's valuable to do it this way, metaphorically, as two opposing military armies. Viruses attack, and the immune system defends. And I want you to start thinking about an attack and a defense. I've asked, why do we have an immune system? Why did God put an immune system inside of who? Adam. Why did he do it? And the theological implications are astonishing. Interferons are the first responders. They're the reconnaissance troops. They're the advanced scouts. They're the watchmen. They're the sentries. Pick your favorite analogies. Interferons... Communicate to the central immune response headquarters, if you wish to think of it that way. And that deploys the, once the interferons say, we have issues, something has attacked us, then the, the 
the major forces, the T cells, the B cells, the antibodies, uh, the reinforcements, if you wish to think of them that way, they are deployed. So the interferons, again, they sound the, the initial call to, call to arms, if you will. But we have these autoantibodies. And what do they do? They disable and attack interferons. Who produces? Where do they come from? They come from the body. And the antibodies, if they're able to disable the interferons, they eliminate this communicative uh, activity, this ability of the interferons to call for backups, if you will. And if they cannot communicate, then the uh, pathogen, if they delay the release of the main force, the immunity force, if the autoantibodies, which are produced by the body, if they attack the interferons, cut off that communication, then what does the virus get to do? Uh, it, it will explode, especially if it is an unfamiliar pathogen. It's, if it's new, if it's novel, if you've never seen one before in your body, then this is a serious issue, and that's what's going on. So what is causing these autoantibodies to become traitorous, to continue the analogy, and attack the interferons? It's basically an autoimmune disease. Somehow the immune system becomes dysfunctional. It becomes confused and it begins to attack itself. And, uh, and when it, what it does, how it does that is it, it creates autoantibodies and the autoantibodies go out and make a mess. And obviously uh, autoimmune disease is a serious issue and it's prevalent today. And you, you really see this happening with people who have asthma, who have uh, hay fever, rheumatoid arthritis, who have chronic fatigue syndrome, they produce autoantibodies. And most of the time the autoantibodies are dormant, they just sit there. But when a new pathogen comes, then they activate. So some people produce this autoimmune dysfunction, and they don't even know it. And if they happen to get coronavirus, then, then the coronavirus is able to replicate at a rate and a level that is very difficult to deal with. So obviously this interferon problem has been brought to the forefront because of this pandemic. And scientists and doctors are producing and administering replacement interferon. It's an inhaler. They can't, uh, they can't inject it at this point because the technology does not does not uh, is not effective that way. In fact, it's defective. So they are produ- they are taking interferons and they're adding them back into people who have autoantibodies in order to have interferon. And interferons actually fight. They also communicate, so they're critical. Uh, so this interferon is called interferon beta one a, and that and if you want to if you want to be future re- or just go research it yourself. It's I think you'll find it fantastic, and that's what they're doing to critical patients now. So it's replacement interferon, interferon that's not disabled. The point being, yay, finally a point. Mm -hmm. Microbiologists are stunned by this. They are incredulous by this discovery that has happened very recently. And as it applies to this COVID-19, remember I said this COVID-19 is going to do something. It is going to take this cooperative that is the entire world and it is going to give them insight into the human aging system that we have never seen since when? Noah and Lot. Luke 17. But again, they're stunned by this discovery. It represents a significant advancement providing incredible understanding into this vast complexity that is the immune response system. The immune response system communicates like an army. It's irreducible. It's unimaginably complex. It's inexplainable, unexplainable, inexplicable. It's mathematically impossible to come from any origin other than an intelligence. That's why I like it. That's why I like gravity. I could have said that same sentence and said gravity. Excuse me. Again, why is this defense system inside us? Why is it inside my dogs, your dogs and cats and animals? Why is it inside there? It's as if the one who created it, installed it, knew 
that an attacker would come. And he knew how the attacker would attack. Why does an attacker come? Who is the attacker? Back we go. Well, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth. We have a picture of an attacker coming to attack. A blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. In other words, what God said to Satan is, have you considered Job who is the absolute opposite of you? He's saying to Satan, how is it possible, if your lie is true, how is it possible that Job exists? And Satan says back to him, well, you got to put a, you put a hedge around him. You're doing it. Okay, I'll take the hedge down. And he did. Job is a problem for Satan. Why is Job a problem for Satan? Satan has to get this done. Adam is a problem for Satan. They're both a problem for Satan for the same reason. Why is that? I gave you the answer already. This is why we, by we, I mean you, develop a timeline in your mind, in your head, and put it in your Bible. Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, they've got to be set alongside with Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 7. Where does Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14 fit? Is it before Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 7? 2, 7, of course, is where the breath of life is put into Adam. And Adam has an immune system already. He has a defense system. The great war in heaven, we know when this great war in heaven ends. It ends in Revelation 12. When did the great war in heaven begin? That's Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14. The abundance of your traffic. When did it start? It's helpful to know when it ends, but we have to figure out again, I think, that when did this start? Coincidentally, coincidence being wholly opposed by omniscience, Job 38.7 gives us something important. So let's go to Job 38.7. Read it before, just in case. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have an understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched out the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Who laid its cornerstones? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, we have a lot of definition. Who are the morning stars? Who are the sons of God? They're angels. Why did they shout for joy? When did that happen? Obviously, Ezekiel 38, Isaiah 14, Job 38, 4 through 7, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 7, they reconcile. They have to. They will. They do. Though some disagree with me. I know. How is They do it. But they do it. Uh, and I don't disagree. The challenges come with the process. Placing everything into its proper order and slot, though, is incredibly valuable to you. And I would recommend that you do it without me. And if you need help, go read Fruchtenbaum. He does a very good job getting you started. When you have that done, then you've got all these why questions resolvable. Why is there immune system? Why is there free will? Why must Satan be given permission to attack? Because he has to have permission. God says, go ahead. You can't kill him. What does that remind you of? Yes, it does. Reminds you of Revelation 9, right? 150 days of no death. Why does God give permission to attack? Did God say, well, people ask me this way, does God have any other choice but to let Satan attack? Of course he does. He chooses to let Satan attack. It's to the benefit of whom that Satan attacks. Is it to the benefit of Satan? No. Is it to the benefit of Job? You can make the case that it is. Job is a problem for Satan. So is Adam. He has to attack them. Because of what they represent as it confronts his law. Did God say uh, of Adam to Satan what he said of Job? Did he say, okay, attack Adam? I've asked the question for many, many years. How many times did Satan attack Adam? Adam was never fooled by him. How many times did Satan attack Eve? 
Why does God allow Satan to attack? It's a very important question. What would Satan, and he has to have permission. He can't attack without permission. Don't be mistaken theologically about that. People say, well, Satan attacked me today. He doesn't know who you are. He's not omniscient. He's busy. You're an idiot. You're a narcissistic idiot, which is a bad idiot. But why does God allow Satan to attack? And when Satan attacks, who does he attack mostly? That's right, the nation of Israel. What would Satan... Now, does he fool everybody? Yes. This entire country is now uh, completely, almost... It's not. My goodness, the blindness that is in this country now, in our country, is extraordinary. I always evaluate political issues as to how they affect the nation of Israel. We are going from a president... Uh, if, this, if, if, if it resolves uh, differently, we're going from a president who defends Israel with his, uh, with his being to a president that uh, was a relentless enemy of Israel or was at least part of, a, uh, part of an administration that was so. So we'll see how it goes. But why does God allow, allow Satan to attack uh, why? What would Satan accuse God of if God did not give permission? Put those together. Okay, now we are getting somewhere. We've taken huge giant steps. If only there was somebody still listening somewhere out there. Anywhere? McFly? Okay, Terry is one of us. We did. We took giant steps. I hope you think so. Anyway, finally, everyone loves finally. I'm going to name my next dog finally. <laughs> finally, we can return to Moses and Michael and Satan. Psalm 10.1 Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? Remember that from a while back? Hopefully somebody does. Psalm 10:13. Why did the wicked why do the wicked renounce God? Why did the wicked say in his heart God will not require any accountability, any account? Why do the wicked say that they will not have to confront adversity? Why? They do. Why do they say it? Clearly Psalm 10:1, why do you stand afar off, O Lord, is the substrate for Psalm 10:13, 10:6, 10:3, 10:4, pretty much all of Psalm 10. I gotta speak louder, is that what you're saying? Okay. Louder. Psalm ten thirteen, ten six, ten three, ten four is all of these things I just said to you. Why do the wicked think the way they think? Why do they believe they're not going to have any adversity? The wicked say that there will be no judgment. There will be no condition traceable to a cause. That's what they say. And they, they do not understand that God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. 2 Peter 3, 9 through 13. Why is God long-suffering? Not willing that any should perish. Long-suffering is a very good clue in that sentence, because what is it? Yes, that's right. You are absolutely correct. It's a time reference. Long-suffering is time. Why does God hide? Why does God wait? Waiting is what? That's right again. You're right again. It's a time reference. What is that? Same as long-suffering. And all of those are the same question. They're just in a little bit different forms. Psalm 16.10, Luke one thirty-five. The body of Christ will not undergo corruption. Acts 2.31. It's not allowed to go into corruption. Why isn't the body of Christ allowed to go into corruption? It's because it's impossible for the body of Christ to undergo a corruption. Why is it impossible? That's a really easy question, I hope. And yes, I realize I've wandered into the peccable or impeccable status of Christ and I have an impeccable position, I think, because it's right. And the other one is, I know there's some wonderful theologians that think Christ could sin. But I think that's impossible and insane. But they cling to it for whatever reason. Whenever you're impeccable or impeccable status of Christ, uh, that's immediately solved by the understanding of the Elohim. I got to talk like this: the Elohim. Where is the Elohim? Uh, Genesis one one. The I am. Exodus three fourteen. The Shema. Genesis, uh, Deuteronomy six four. Anyway, 
you, once you have that, you will, you will, I think, go directly to the impeccable view that it is the right view. It is God honoring view. If you have a view that is not God honoring, then guess who gave it to you? Anyway, why did Michael fight, contend with Satan over the body of Moses, Jude 9? Look how he brings it all the way back. Wow, is he good. Obviously, this is solved in my view. The second question, why did God hide the body of Moses? Deuteronomy 34, 6 and 7. Obviously, hiding the body of Moses and fighting over the body of Moses, same thing. Two parts of a whole. It's a unit. Easy question. Does Deuteronomy 18.15, where Moses is identified as a type of Christ, the prophet to come, like unto me, does that equal, does that cause Psalm 16.10? In other words, because... And, and cause is the wrong word. Again, that's a humanistic, inside-of-time way of thinking. Moses is in a situation where his body is fought over and hidden. What does that have to do with Christ's body not going to corruption? That's what I'm asking. Because it has to have something to do with that because of Deuteronomy 18.15. Moses is a type of Christ. How does Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea fit into all of this? Nicodemus and Joseph, Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel. He figured out that Christ was the I Am. He understood the ladder. He understood the bronze serpent. He understood all of that. He was amazing. He's the one that decides what to do. He takes the burial spices and puts them in the tomb in the garden. Before the women even made the... The, the, the women wasted their time once again. Before they even made the spices. But the spices are an incredible mystery because they make no sense. Joseph and Nicodemus had to know the body of Christ, who is the last Adam, the first Adam, Genesis 2 7, lay in a state, didn't he? he? They had to understand that the second Adam, the last Adam, would also lay in a state, and they had to know that he would not go into corruption because of the impeccable status of Christ. 16.10, a psalm tells you that Christ must be impeccable. Therefore, what are they thinking? The wrapping and binding of Christ's body? Why did they do that? The body is not going to go to corruption. Why do they wrap it? It seems to be unwarranted, but it's not unwarranted because Nicodemus is ahead of us. He knows he's got to wrap the body. He knows it doesn't won't make any sense to most people. What is the number one reason they wrap the body? Go to Lazarus. Because it's a fragrant mixture. Does Christ need a fragrant mixture? He's not going to go to corruption. The fragrant mixture masks the putrefaction. It's not applicable to the body of Christ. But it was to Lazarus. Lazarus had to be, he was bound. Christ was bound. They bound him in myrrh, which happens to be what? Something that the Magi, the, the court of Daniel, brought when he was an infant. There's your first clue of why Nicodemus, what Nicodemus is thinking. Lazarus was bound. He had to be loosed. And the issue of putrefaction with respect to the body of Lazarus is a prominent element. Read John 11:39. They were so afraid. He's going to smell. Well, Christ had already fixed that. Roll the rock away. There is no smell. Why not? Because Lazarus had been, been brought out of death. If the body of Moses went into immediate decomposition, which is what happens every time, no exception. There's no exception to that. But if it, if, if it did go into immediate decomposition, does this not eliminate the motive of Satan to seize the body of Moses? Why would he take and haul around a, dec a decomposing body? What would he gain by that? Why would Michael and Satan struggle, contend over a decomposed, disintegrating body? Does that make sense? The body of Adam in Genesis 2-7, the body of the second Adam, Christ at John 20, lay in a stable state, as I said. Did God take the undiminished body of Moses, Deuteronomy 34-7, and suspend uh, Genesis 3-19? Did he do that for Moses? Did he suspend his Ecclesiastes 12, 6 through 7? If he did, 
then Adam and Christ's stable state would be, you would add Moses to that stable state. And that would, of course, make sense because Deuteronomy 18.15 and Romans 5.14 tell us they bring out these two men. So I'm asking, how much does the type include? If you were inclined to conclude the possibility that uh, the body of Moses is in a unique condition with respect to all other human bodies, and we'll get to that again, then it's necessary to ask why. Why did God do this with Moses' body? What about Elijah? What about Enoch? What about Aaron? What about Elisha? All of them, all of their deaths are very unusual. Obviously, the body of Moses is evidence of something. That means that it is what? It is the same thing as Job, the same thing as Adam. It's a problem for Satan, and I would expect that. Adam is a problem for Satan. Moses is a problem for Satan. Job is a problem for Satan. Just concede the the hypothetical that I just gave you. Can I prove it? I think I can get close, but just give me the concession for uh, for a second. Imagine if Israel got possession of the body of Moses and it did not go to corruption. What would they do with it? What was Satan afraid of that he was willing to fight over this body? He's afraid of something, isn't he? What is it? Keep in mind, we who are in Christ will be reunited with our bodies. The order is interesting. The bodies of the dead in Christ rise first to a state described in Genesis 2-7, and then the soul is put into it. Then we that are alive, uh, those of us who remain alive, and I hope that's us, we are then to follow. And all of that is a repeating of Genesis 2-7. Okay. I finished on time, didn't I? Amazing. I'm amazing. Let's all say how amazing I am.